G'day everybody, Matt Ellis with you for the latest edition of the Cricket Library podcast and today we get to hear the tale of a man who played first class cricket at WA and Tasmania before moving into a role in coaching where he's worked with some of the best players around the world in both the men's and women's game. He'll give us some insights into his cricketing journey so far, his philosophy of coaching and what he thinks the secret is behind the success at Western Australia in recent times. It's time to sit back, relax and enjoy the Tim McDonald story on the Cricket Library podcast. A very warm welcome to the Cricket Library podcast. Tim McDonald, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, I, I really like to find out uh, the origins of people's passions for cricket. And you've been involved in cricket a very long time, but uh, the, the seed must have been planted somewhere. Can we, can we start out by getting a little bit of a background into where the fire was lit for you? Oh, yeah, it's, um, it's taking me back a fair way here, Matt. But um, I think uh, my, my first real um, foray into cricket was, was on an indoor cricket court um, at, a, at a quite a young age, maybe seven or eight years of age. Um, I didn't really grow up in a, in a cricketing family um, and I, I didn't play, you know, the, the, low, the low young levels of cricket that, you know, you can, you can play these days. Um, and uh, I suppose I played a bit of t-ball, but uh, yeah, my first, uh, my first love for cricket, I suppose, was was born on the indoor cricket court inside the net. Um, so yeah, that was that was really my first memories of, of playing cricket, and then and then taking that home and um, you know kind of bowling by myself or batting by myself in the backyard to, to you know learn the game a bit more. So no brothers or sisters to pester for a, for a game of backyard cricket. <laughs> I have an older sister who's um, although has been quite supportive over the years is not a massive fan of cricket so no she was uh, she was um, pursuing her own loves and and didn't really have any interest in a in a young annoying uh, brother who was kicking around the house so 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 when does that early um, love of the game playing indoor cricket when 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 do you decide to get into junior club cricket and uh, when when do you figure out you've got some skill and talent to work with there Oh, I suppose um, that was quite a long journey for me. I, I, I then um, ended up playing, you know, uh, some outdoor cricket when I hit about 11 or 12 years of age and, um, you know, came across a group of, of guys that uh, I, I got on really well with and and we really enjoyed playing together and, and enjoyed the game. And, um, you know, we came up through the, the community junior levels playing together and, and I suppose, um, you know, I, I probably showed that I, I had a little bit of something and uh, made a few of the... The district sides along the way as well, but um, cricket for me, you know, during my my teenage years and and into my early twenties was was really just about the people I played with and and how much we enjoyed it and uh, enjoyed it on the field and and then you know as teenage years and early twenties went on, enjoyed it off the field. Have an inkling or a knowledge of, of you know, what 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 it was uh, what I needed to do to. At a professional level, I was chosen to represent any of the underage uh, sides for, for Western Australia over here. Um, so yeah, it was it was really an outlet for me. It was really where I met you know most of my my good friends today, and 
um, where I could have some good good fun at, on the training track and uh, on weekends. And were you working at the time, like in your early twenties? Were you working? Were you at uni? What was what was going on outside of playing cricket on a Saturday? Bits of both. I uh, yeah, I, went, I was studying at university. Um, you know, in my late teens. Um, while you know starting to play up the grades, um, I suppose for for my district club as well. So yeah, there was a little bit of work, and um, I think uh, I think I ended up playing a couple of first grade games when I was about seventeen or eighteen um, for my club side, Claremont Netherlands. Um, that didn't go that well, um, but yeah, I, I sort of the year after, I think when I was you know eighteen turning nineteen, I had quite a good first season uh, in full season in first grade for Claremont Netherlands. So things kind of kicked on a little bit from there. Yeah, and, and a big season, 2005-06, um, a mountain of wickets in uh, club cricket. How, how do you sort of find out that there's interest from the WACA to join the state squad? Well, yeah, I suppose, um, as I said, uh, I still hadn't really didn't really know what it what it took to, to be a professional cricketer to be a, a first class cricketer and but I um I'd, I'd strung sort of three or four really good seasons together for Claremont where I'd uh, I'd taken you know a lot of wickets three or four years in a row and uh, you know people start talking and saying um, you know you should you should give this a crack <clears throat> I still didn't really know what that looked like um but uh, eventually I suppose through through weight of wickets I um I was. I was picked in a, a second eleven game um, before I before I had a contract and and did reasonably do well in that um, and yeah was invited down to the preseason training the, the the next year and 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 got a bit of a you know a shock on on how professional athletes actually train so uh, yeah it was um that was that yeah that that I suppose that's where the the professional side of cricket really started for me. Yeah, a bit of a culture shock from, like, what were some of the, the differences you picked up on uh, from a training perspective? Oh, I suppose the first learning for me was about time. You know, if, if, it's, a, if it's an 8 o'clock session in the morning, you don't, you don't arrive at two minutes to eight, I suppose. <laughs> Everyone's sort of ready to go. Um, uh, you know, I was still pretty young and, and um, had been, you know, fairly sheltered in my life. But I, I think... Um, yeah, just just how hard physically um, to train. I was probably, you know, I had the the skill to to bowl the balls. I was bowling in club cricket, but I never really knew uh, a high level of fitness. So, I suppose the the preseason is where most of that work happens. And um, yeah, the, the the first year, the the early morning bike sessions and and boxing sessions and running sessions. Um, I actually really did enjoy them, and I and I, I grew to enjoy them even more and more as we we went along. But they they were a bit of a shock when I first uh, started doing them full time for a job. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And you, you get to play your first first class game against New South Wales. I, I was just looking back at the scorecard from this game, and there was something like nine of the eleven New South Wales players had played Test cricket, and probably half of the WA side had played test cricket as well. What's the, what's the emotion like coming into an environment like that? Yeah, look, it was a bit, it was a bit of a last minute uh, call up as well. We'd, um, we played a second 11 game over here in Perth um, on the Monday through to the, the, well, it was supposed to be the Thursday. And I think we'd beaten Victoria um, 
hit early on the fourth day and, and I'd, I'd taken a few wickets and um, I think Brett Dory, uh, West Australian quick, big big outswing bowler, had gone down uh, with a calf injury in their one-day game on the Wednesday. Um, and so, uh, you know, before we took the field on the, the last day of the second 11 game, I, I got a phone call to, to fly over to Sydney um, to cover for, for that injury. So, um it was a yeah. I'd, I'd kind of played four or five days cricket with club cricket as well in a row, and then oh, wow. I got a plane Thursday and um, not expecting to play. I suppose I was expecting to maybe be twelfth man, and and got the call to to play my first shield game on the Friday. Thankfully, we we actually batted first, but uh, yeah, it was um, it was quite daunting. I'd, I'd never been to the SCG before, um, and you you're walking into you know the most. Uh, historic sort of cricket ground in, in the country and, and you've got all this, I'm a massive cricket nuffy and, and <laughs> cricket tragic and, um, you know, always felt that I was, you know, sort of how much uh, I was enjoying just being part of an environment and, and being around all these sort of guys who uh, I'd watch play cricket. But, um, yeah, you walk into the SCG and it's next level with all the memorabilia and, and the history and, that was uh, that was daunting enough in itself, but yeah, as you said, the, the New South Wales sides of, of that era were were always uh, full of Australian players. Um, the baggy blue was the baggy green as well, and uh, yeah, it was was quite daunting for me. And you mentioned you batted first. You you spent close to two hours at the crease. <laughs> were you, were you just loving every minute? of being out there on the SCG. Uh, your job in the team is to take wickets, but getting getting to spend time in the middle and, and soak it in? Yeah, look, uh, the first probably half hour weren't as enjoyable as you'd think. I think, um, I think it was, might have been Brad Haddon was, was keeping at the time. And, but there was, yeah, there was a lot of chat. Stuart McGill bowled me my <laughs> first ball in, in first-class cricket and he was turning at about three foot and I'd never seen anything like it and they were telling me all about it as well. But uh, <laughs> no, it was great. <laughs> I think I walked out to the middle and, um, actually, my my current boss and head coach Adam Voges was was out in the middle, and uh, yeah, he he sort of talked me through it a bit, and I think uh, he ended up with a hundred that day as well. So it was it was good to spend some time out in the middle of him. I didn't do a lot of scoring, but uh, thankfully he did, and uh, yeah, it was a, it was a bit of fun. It was a, a big challenge. I, I didn't really have a lot of shots as a batsman, but uh, surviving for Adam became the key uh, amongst a verbal barrage from uh, the New South Wales players. Yeah, yeah, he he made one one forty odd knot in that game, and then um, then you have to bowl to Simon Kadich at the peak of his powers. Um, talk us through your mindset going in and and bowling at that level for the first time. Yeah, I suppose uh, it, yeah, I still have memories of of what I what I class as nerves. I'd never had nerves uh, bowling a cricket ball, but um, I can't really remember the first over or two at all, and. You know, you've got. I had, had luckily had some really senior, experienced players: Marcus North, out of Voges, Chris Rogers. These guys who could, uh, Steve McGoffin, uh, who could run up and sort of say, "Mate, just just chill out a bit and uh, and have some fun." But yeah, it's hard to remember the first couple of overs. But uh, I do remember um, it being very strange what Simon Caddis did with his stance and his setup. And I do remember how flat the wicket was, which wasn't like what club cricket is like in Perth. Um, <laughs> and I, do, I do remember how hard it was to actually take a wicket, which uh, I didn't actually end up doing at all in that first game. So, uh, 
yeah, they're, they're my major memories of bowling my first game of first-class cricket. And you, you get a taste of T20 cricket that season at WA, um, but at the end of the season, you decide to move down to Tasmania. Can you talk talk through a little bit about uh, the reason to head down to Tassie and and how how challenging was it to move away from your your family and your friends? Yeah, sure. Um, we actually, uh, my wife and I actually got married at the end of that uh, season as well, and. Um, you know, WA had, had offered a contract, and and it was it was sitting there ready for you know when we got back from our honeymoon to to sign and move on again um, and and try it all again. Um, I suppose uh, you know I, I'd had four, four, five, six years of of performing in club cricket over here, but um, you know I, I, I suppose really only twelve months of of the hard fitness work. So um, I had a bit of a name over here, I suppose, for but maybe being a really good bowler who who probably wasn't quite in, in the shape they needed to be. And, and I, I felt that that was going to be hard to shake. Um, I was happy to do the work. Um, Tasmania called when we returned uh, from from our honeymoon and, and everything they said was just really positive. They just want a shield. Um, they still wanted wanted me down there and they liked what they saw in, in a couple of second 11 games that I'd played against them. And... Um, they had an aging attack and quite a few injuries around, um, and you know they thought I'd, I'd be a really good fit. Um, I, I suppose uh, it, you know, it was great to hear such such positivity, and um, we, you know, we just decided as a newly married couple that yeah, why not? We'd uh, we'd we'd take the plunge and um, headed over there, and it was it was awesome. It was um, yeah, great experience for all of us. Had your wife grown up in WA as well? Yeah, she was a Perth girl, and um, yeah, she she was a PE teacher from Perth, and uh, yeah, she was uh, she was all on board with it. She thought it was a you know really exciting opportunity, and we moved to Hobart not long after that, and um, yeah, we spent five years down there, met some some really beautiful people, and had some really great experiences. Uh, you have some some on field success as well with Tassie. Um, one one highlight that stands out for me, and and feel free to share others. The six for against South Australia, and and some big wickets in there. Michael Klinger, Callum Ferguson, and Eunice Khan in amongst the six. Uh, what do you remember about how you bowled that day? <laughs> yeah, I suppose that was probably one of the very few days uh, in my first class career where everything kind of clicked. Um, the I do remember the ball to get Eunice Khan out was. I, I still remember it as probably the best ball I've ever bowled, and and that you know that's probably one of the uh, one of the fondest memories I've got of, of taking a wicket in first class cricket. Um, but uh, yeah, they they had a pretty good lineup as well, the South Australians, and and um, yeah, we we had a good win, which was great. Yeah, and um, knowing that your best is good enough to get the best out, uh, does that does that help your mindset? going into future games? Yeah, it definitely does. I suppose that was a battle I always had with myself uh, as someone who, um, you know, had, had played, had been a club cricketer for so long and, um, you know, had, had, I suppose, settled to play the game for fun. Um, knowing that you're good enough uh, is, is always, or not knowing that you're good enough is always something that sits in the back of your mind and maybe holds you back a little bit. But, um, you know, I, it had been a few years or a few games and it had taken, I think, 
yeah, almost 10 games for that that to happen over a long period of time. I'd, I'd had some injury issues when I first went to Tassie and then, uh, you know, broke onto the field and, and taken a few wickets here and there, but, but never had the, the major breakthrough. So I suppose, yeah, getting a, getting a five for is, uh, you know, something you can look back on and say, you know, there were times where, where maybe I was good enough. Yeah, yeah, and you, you get to play against Sri Lanka for Tasmania, and it, the the thing I wanted to ask you about you here, um, Sanath Jayasuriya retires hurt. You're the bowler. Uh, as as a bowler, when you're bowling at that level and someone gets injured, h- how does that affect your mindset and the way you approach the bowling? Do, is that something that you've just sort of got to put out of your mind, or is it something that uh you know, as a fast bowler, you're you're trying to do a job, and if you can shorten someone up, then you've probably done your job. What 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 are the reflections on that? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Uh, we played. I think it was a list day game. We played a fifty over game uh, against Sri Lanka at Melrose Oval in Hobart, and um, it was, I think, one of their only, or it's probably their only warm up game for the the summer when they'd come over, and they had a full full strength side on the park, and I remember bowling to. Sanath, he was at the the height of his powers, and and he was absolutely crunching us uh, and hitting the ball hard. Um, quite a few of them going straight to fielders, and uh, I remember George Bailey saying, um, "Mate, you need to stop bowling half volleys here because you're going to break someone's hand in the cover <laughs> region." Um, <laughs> and so, so uh, yeah, I, I thought, oh, okay, well, I'll bounce him. And he goes, "Yeah, go on. That's, that's better than what you've been dishing up." So I. Um, I bounced him. He, he in, it was still in the days where um, Santos used to, to wear the helmet but no grill. Um, mm. He had the earpieces in, and um, he he played a pull shot. Probably played three or four pull shots, and uh, had not had time to play a fifth. And and then uh, yeah, he'd, he'd actually hit him in the jaw. And um, I think it was probably a week or so before their first test, and he went down, and there was a bit of blood. And um, I suppose it's never a never a great feeling um it's probably you know a worse feeling post the, the phil hughes incident as well but you know none of us had really experienced anything like that yet so um it was uh it was an interesting one he, he went off the field and uh he came back to the ground later on and i went over and had a chat with him and um i said Thomas, you know uh you okay and he said yeah yeah and he had 12 stitches in his chin and he seemed all right, and he was with it. And I said, "What happened there, mate? You were <laughs> you were absolutely crunching him." And uh, uh, and he said, "Oh, you know, very good ball, very good slow ball. You did me." So uh, <laughs> 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 said, yeah, uh, thanks for that. Uh, so, yeah. So, did you invent the slow ball bouncer? <laughs> it seems like it. You speak to Santa Maria, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> now there, there's some some really big names that you would have played with both at the Wacker and down in Tassie. Um, who who have been your key influences as a as a player and um, blokes that you just loved turning up to play with? Yeah, I suppose down in Tassie was um, you know it was a great environment to to come into. They were used to sort of housing people from, you know, a lot of other states and, and how welcoming they were um, to you and your family was, was unbelievable and I'm, I'm sure they're still like that. They do rely a lot on imports um, as a as a program and as an organisation but uh, they were ab- absolutely brilliant for me. You know, guys like Tim Payne was pretty young at the time but 
you know, he, he was great to play with, um, great to hang out with off the field as well. Travis Burt, who I'm still very good friends with, who works with us here at the Wacker, um, and, you know, Brett Jeeves and, and those sort of guys, um, everyone was really welcoming and, and they played the game hard. They were really well planned. They trained trained hard. They had a great senior group who knew how to win uh, down there. So it was a really good learning experience for me. Um, you know, I wasn't always in the team, but I was always around, you know, some, some very good cricketers who, who had some good knowledge to impart. Yeah, absolutely. Travis Burt could hit a long ball. He hit some big ones over the years. Yeah, I think he still could. Uh, he's uh, he's coaching in our um, in our academy program down here now, so hopefully he's teaching a few more youngsters how to do the same. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Now, a transition into coaching. At what point do you start to get an inkling that you could be good at it, and and how does that transition occur? Yeah, I never had any interest or inkling that uh, you know coaching was going to be for me, Matt. I um. I lost my contract with Tasmania in, in 2011 and we moved, we moved back to Perth and I moved back to my old club, came on um, and took on captaincy there and was just keen to, you know, play my last, while I could still walk <laughs> two years um, cricket uh, with, with my mates and with the club that had, had helped me so much over my journey and um, I, I think we lost the grand final in uh, maybe 2014 and um I was sort of tossing up whether to keep going and um, the club said to me, well, we want you to coach. Um, I hadn't even thought about it before that. I'd sat on, you know, the interviews and the meetings you have with prospective coaches and, um, you know, we discussed it afterwards and, and they kind of surprised me with it. And I said, well, if I'm going to coach, I'm not I'm not going to play and um, we'll do this properly and, and had a crack and just, just really loved it. There's a grounding in... In club cricket that you get as a coach is unbelievable. You're pretty much uh, you're doing everything from you know selling beers behind the bar to cleaning out storerooms to running building uh, training to you know working all through the grades and, and with the juniors as well. And you, you just learn so much about uh, you know how all the different parts work together in a club. So um, that's uh, that's probably how uh, the love for coaching started, um, and it started at that at the club where, you know, my my professionalism as a cricketer had started as well. So, um, yeah, really just built from there. I was I was working as well in, in, in business with my dad at the time and I suppose um, over the years more more time went into uh, planning and, and attending cricket training sessions and cricket games than did, you know, on business and uh, yeah, it was it was it was my outlet, it was my real love while I was working as well and um, yeah, I just yeah, I just started to to have a real hunger to be back in in a dressing room, uh, professional dressing room in some capacity, and and um, I suppose now with what I'm doing, that that's really filled that void. And and I, when you speak to a lot of coaches, you think you think you're on your own with that, but um, like a lot of guys, uh, one of their major motivations for but being a coach after they've played is, is to be back in that high-performance environment and, and just witness it and be a part of it and see, you know, what goes on through the highs and the lows. Yeah, yeah, and there certainly are a, a lot of highs and lows a, along the way. And I guess having experienced some of those as a player uh, helps give a bit of context to what the next crop of players are, are, are going through. 
Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I, I haven't had as many experiences as most of the guys I'm coaching, but, you, you know, you sort of, sort of build this bank, don't you, over the years of, of being a part of conversations and observing what guys are going through and, and you start to see patterns and, and guys going through same things that you've witnessed or been through yourself before and, and you can kind of offer some guidance guidance, or you, you can kind of know what, what, they're, what they're needing um, from you. So, um, yeah, that, that's definitely one of the bonuses of, of playing the game, even though I didn't play a hell of a lot at first-class level. It's, it's one of the bonuses that you, you have had some of those experiences um, to draw on, even when you, you, you're just trying to help someone through a situation. Yeah, for sure. And what what's your what was your first uh I guess professional coaching appointment? Like you you you're obviously doing your your club stuff and you're loving that. When when do you get the tap on the shoulder or do you do you instigate uh your first professional opportunity? Uh no, definitely not. I um I coached uh the club side Claremont Netherlands for 3 years and at the end of that third year um we were expecting our second child and um, I suppose it had, it had consumed a lot of my life and, and cricket had consumed a lot of my life and my wife and family's life as well. And uh, my wife just had sort of said to me a few weeks earlier, you know, you think it'd be great if you um, were expecting our second child, if you maybe had a, a season or two off cricket and we could, you know, see what weekends are like in summer again. And uh, I tended to agree with her. So I, I pulled the pin from from coaching uh, at the end of that season and, um, you know, to concentrate on the family life. And, and I, I think it was probably less than six weeks later that my wife then said to me, um, you're annoying, you need to get out of the house. So you, need, <laughs> <laughs> you need to go and find something to do. And that lined up really nicely with a with a phone call from Lisa Kiteley, who was um, running the women's program, was running the uh, WA Women's and Scorchers team down at the Wacker. Yeah, and, and working with Lisa, tell us tell us about that. Uh, she's a mudgy girl from Central West New South Wales. She's got a grandstand named after her uh, down there in Mudgee. I'd say probably one of the one of the first female cricketers to have a grandstand named after them. Anyway, that's a side point. Um, probably just one for the cricket nuffies. But uh, you you get to spend some time work, working with the women's program. Uh, tell us what you learnt through that experience. Oh, a hell of a lot. Yeah, I um, I came on board initially. Um, I think the way Lisa's way of getting me in the door was she said, I've got a couple of fast bowlers that I wouldn't mind you having a look at, you know, a few hours a week here and there, um, which was which was how it began. And um, I, I, I suppose the sort of person I am, once, I'd, uh, once I was in here and working with those bowlers, I, I couldn't actually uh, – just do those couple of hours. I ended up being at every session, and, and you know, um, then at all their games, and and then quite early on in the first season, and I was started, I was on every away trip as well. Um, so it was um, it was a professional coaching position, but um, you know, I was very much still working full time and trying to fit this in and around it at uh, the business. Um, but yeah, it was it was really my first taste of getting back into that professional environment. That that um, I've environment and, and um yeah it, it really assured me straight away even though it took probably three or four years to come about that that coaching was actually what I wanted to do uh, in this part of my life um and Lisa was amazing with that she you know we we've worked a lot together now over the last six years and um you know we've spent a lot of a lot of time together 
around the world and in bubbles and in hotel rooms and on planes and stuff like that. So we, we know each other really well, but, um, I think, uh, you know, the biggest thing she gave me, especially in those early, early days is, um, the freedom to, to do things the way I wanted to do it. She was definitely not, uh, you know, micromanaging or anything like that. She, she was, um, she was really keen. Um, you know, she, she uses the excuse that she doesn't know anything about fast bowling, but she, she, she does and, and, and yeah, she just let me go about my business and um which was great and I learned I learned a heap, I learned a heap of suppliers and, and her and, and the other coaching staff as well. And, and that time working with the England women's cricket team and being in those bubbles in the UK, how how is that with from a family perspective? Did you did you have time away from your family to be able to do that? Ah uh, yeah, my wife and children stayed in Perth. Um, the whole time. Um, obviously, when I took the job with England, it was at the start of 2020. Um, initially, it was a three-month little contract, um, which turned into a full-time role, and then and then COVID hit. So it wasn't exactly uh, you know how we we planned things. We knew that there'd be you know weeks apart on end um, before we could meet up. Um, the idea was you know so the kids and and my wife could experience the world while we were travelling around and. Um, We'd be back and forth on planes and things like that, but obviously COVID put a, a pretty abrupt end to that. So it was difficult. We um, the first year, I think we did seven and a half months uh, apart, um, and it was you know just by chance and luck that we actually were able to get a flight home and and sit in a hotel room for fourteen days just to, to see the family for a week or so. Um, and then the, the second year, I think, was even longer than that. Um, there was a, a stretch of <laughs> Probably ten months uh, where I, I hadn't seen my house or my dog, but uh, you know we'd we'd been able to get the family over um, to Sydney during the women's ashes, which was great. Um, but yeah, it was it was a strange time, difficult time, I suppose. Um, I'd always been someone who wanted to be in and amongst and around people. I craved I craved uh, company of, of other people, but I really learned how to be alone with myself and <laughs> a lot. Yeah. Um, did, did seven seven cents in hotel quarantine um, over that time. So you learn uh, you learn to like your own company and, and you can, yeah, I suppose, really use that time for, for self-reflection and a lot of learning, a lot of reading, a lot of listening to podcasts and things like that. So there was, uh, even though it was really, really tough times, there was some good things to come out of that. Um, some really good friendships um, come out of that. The stint with England, two and a half years there, you're spending a lot of time um Inside bubbles with with other staff and 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 the players. I think at one stage we were locked inside the Derbyshire cricket ground for twelve weeks, uh, where we couldn't wow. leave um, the player series to train and their player series. So, um, yeah, look, mentally there's probably you know some difficulties and a lot of people struggled and are still struggling with some of the things that happened there. But uh, yeah, there was some positive to come out of it. Definitely. You talk about uh, that time to reflect um in that time of reflection did you did you able to look back and think about how your personal coaching philosophy has evolved i mean you've worked you've worked in club cricket you've spent some time with the australian women's cricket team some time with the english women's team and and in the work that you're doing now uh with the western australian men's teams how has that philosophy evolved um as you've uh, as you've developed through your career, 
Yeah, uh, it's a very good question. I think the time with um, the, the women's team definitely uh, changed my philosophy and, and my outlook, especially on game day. Um, I think sometimes in a male environment uh, when, when you know, games are tight and emotions are flowing, um, you know, people can get pretty animated and, and excited. But um, it's not something that uh, female athletes uh, in general like seeing um, and you know you can you can really um, change uh, environments for the worse if, if you are animated and, and emotional uh, especially around game day and training and um, training training for the for certainly the women's sides I've worked with um, has been mostly based on fun um, and the fun is what motivates uh, the hard work um, you know with with the male sides that you know, the competitive spirit and things like that seems to be a much higher motivator. But um, I think uh, just an empathy for the for the athletes, whether that was born about um, through the COVID times or, or, you know, spending more time with female athletes, um, I think um, more empathy and more trying to understand uh, each individual and where they're at and what that, what you know, how that affects, um, you know, how how they need to tackle the problems that are ahead of them um, is probably, I suppose, uh, how my coaching philosophy has evolved less um, from, you know, um, what used to be probably more a direct style as, as a, a captain who then went on to coach uh, the club that I'd always play for and, and then uh, more as a, you know, standing alongside an athlete and, and looking at, you know, what's ahead and, and how do we, how do we go on this journey together and, and how do we solve this problem and, and how, how can I help and how, how do we try and build you the tools that, you know, next time this, this arises that you've got, you know, options ahead of you um, to help solve those problems. Yeah, yeah, that's a really interesting um, reflection there. I, I know I, we're similar ages and I know when, when I was growing up playing cricket, it was a lot of direct instruction, a lot of being told... Um, told what you need to go and do and not a lot of not a lot of um collaboration there and and more a i guess a, a one size fits all kind of approach uh that if it works for for one it should work for all but a- athletes are all unique individual human beings and they're going to have different drivers and um that's probably the hardest hardest thing to to work out is is what each athlete needs at any given time because on one day they might need something and another day they might need something else. Uh, that's exactly right. And um, I think, you know, there's, there's, there's a Bruce Lee quotes about uh, a man never stands in the, the same river twice. It's, it's you know, different. But I, I don't believe in the one size fits all, especially when it comes to the, the coaching of bowlers and fast bowlers. And everyone comes with their own unique skill set, their own movement patterns and their own strengths and weaknesses and and um, they can actually you know, if, if we're going with a one size fits all approach to, to how to bowl a cricket ball, you can actually be inhibiting some of those strengths. So I think, uh, you know, we've got to look at and work with each athlete uh, completely separately and, and to do that you've got to be able to get to know them, them first, how they move, how they think, you know, what's, uh, what's going on in their lives as well. So uh, yeah, I suppose that's where I'm at at the moment with my coaching philosophies, and um, yeah, it's definitely a, a a team approach, a side by side approach to, to coaching. Yeah, absolutely. And 
The on-field success at the WACA. The WACA are probably the envy of Australian cricket at the moment. Um, a, a wonderful period in Western Australian cricket with what you've been able to achieve in, in both the men's and women's programs in, in recent times. From your perspective, as someone who's, who's entrenched in Western Australian cricket culture, what's the, what are the key ingredients? What are the things that you think are contributing to that on-field success? Yeah, it's an interesting one because I've, uh, in a way, kind of parachuted in. Um, I joined back up uh, in August last year. So I only had one season inside this environment, which has uh, clearly been a very successful environment. Um, and But I have had that time to reflect on that. You know, people ask you that question a lot. Um, and I think I think basically the two main answers I give are, are, the, are people uh, and planning. Um it's, it's two of the biggest strengths of, of our current setup. So the people that are here and, and how those people are, are valued and, and, and looked after. And, um, you know, when, when new people come into the organisation, it, it's definitely more about who, how, uh, who they are as a person uh, rather than, you know, what they've done in the past and how they fit as a person into this organisation, um, which, which is great to see, you know, led, led from at the top by Christina Matthews and, and Kate Harvey and Adam Voges as well. And, um, you know, it's, it's a people-first approach to, to build the environment. But obviously that's happened over a very long period of time. And we're lucky enough to be in a bit of a, a purple patch where, you know, we've got enough players at the right age who have played a hell of a lot of cricket and they're all just really keen to stay together and, and continue to, to have success for WA. They love playing together. They're all really good mates. Um, they love, uh, you know teaching the younger guys that come in, you know, how to how to not only be cricketers but how how to behave and how to be really good people. Um, so the people side of it is huge and then uh, the other one I mentioned was the planning. I I've not seen uh, you know, during COVID planning had to be really, really thorough but um, I've not seen an organisation who plans forward so well. Um, and I guess I guess when you're successful you you could you could easily just say, well, that worked last year. We'll do it again. It's definitely not like that. That here, we're definitely picking apart um, not only the parts that we want to do better next year, but also look how do we how do we have the year we're having this year in five years' time, and, and what are the pieces of the puzzle to make sure that we can sustain this success? You know, there's every team has a life cycle, and and generally after some good success, the life cycle turns and. Um, you know, you, you you may have to build again because you, you you know you're dealing with salary caps and you're dealing with um, players moving up to to international games. So you you do tend to lose players very quickly when you've had success. So how do we plan to to limit that and and you know keep this part of this team's lifestyle running for as long as we can? Is it a real satisfying thing for you when players? do get called up for higher honours? Is that is that one of the key markers of success? Uh, as, along with obviously you, obviously winning the Big Bash and winning the Sheffield Shield, they're, they're big ticks. But when you see uh, young guys getting touted uh, and selected in Australian squads, is that, um, is that something that really excites the coaching group? Absolutely. That's our, our number one driver at the moment. Um, I remember when I sat down with, with Adam and, and Kate Harvey before, um, you know, I, I came on board um, 
and I said, look, you've won three, all three competitions. Um, what's, what's, you know, what are we looking forward to? What, you know, what, what's driving us for next year? And, and it was definitely the, the number one thing is Australian representation and getting some of these guys uh, who have played so well for so long. Um, you know, we're getting guys picked in squads. There's a lot of West Australians in white ball squads, uh, T20 squads and, and 50 over squads as well. But we've only got one player in the test team. Um, you know, it's been massive for us to have a second West Australian take the field with Sam Green in, in our test side. That's uh, one of our biggest driving factors. And I suppose the last field game we played before the Big Bash, we played at the Gabba. Um, and we came off the field on the last day with a draw. Um, but Lance Morris had nearly bowled us to victory. Um, and uh, he received a phone call pretty much as we were coming off the field to say that he, he'd been included in the test squad and... and being in that change rooms where, you know, there was 12 other guys jumping on top of him and celebrating. The fact that, that it happened, uh, it's definitely a collective who have who have that goal. Um, the whole organisation is pushing towards that. So, yeah, that's definitely our number one goal. Yeah, that's outstanding. Outstanding. And your personal hopes for the future, what, what, what does Tim McDonald have um, written down in the in the goal sheet or the, the journal as you as – you, Dream big and think big for the future. What 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 do you see yourself doing? Yeah, good question. I, I, I wouldn't mind staying in coaching uh, for for a while yet. Um, I, I've really enjoyed experiencing a whole heap of different environments, and I think coaching sort of changing in a way that we can now go and experience other environments while we're you know I'm still working for the Wacker, but I might be able to go and experience another environment and learn some more from that. So. Immediate goals are to try and sort of continue my learning here and in what is, you know, probably one of the most successful environments uh, in Australian cricket for a very long time. Um, but also, you know, how can I continue to learn and grow um, and, and get ideas from, from other environments? Because I think that's what uh, shapes me to where I am now is the, the different environments I've, I've been lucky enough to, to witness and experience. And uh, I want to keep doing that. And, and I suppose one day... Um, I do have an ambition to, to coach my own team. I don't know whether that would be, you know, um, in a full-time role or, or, you know, a franchise role or something like that. But I, I'd, I'd really love to learn enough and experience enough and work towards that. But uh, that's, that's uh, yeah, at the moment, we're just about gearing up for another season. So all of the uh, all of your energies uh, over the next couple of weeks as the players start filtering back in, we'll, we'll be going into that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And um, before we let you go, Tim, it's been been great chatting with you and I, I love your passion for the game and your passion for coaching. Uh, our favourite question for our guests is if you could invite any three people to the cricket nets, uh, who would you choose and why would you choose them? It d- doesn't have to be cricketers, could be could be anyone you like, but um, who's on your list for a dream net session? <laughs> Dream net session. Well, I suppose the first one is definitely not a cricketer, uh, but uh, probably flavour of the month uh, in the coaching world and, and in the TV world at the moment is, is Ted Lasso. I just love. Uh, I'd love to, to meet a person or a coach who who was like Ted Lasso with that much energy and that much passion. And uh, I think you would not have a boring net session. It would be. It'd be quite entertaining. It'd be upbeat. Um, 
yeah, so that would, he'd be my number one just to, to drive the mood and the feeling at the session. Um, I'd have uh, quite a few questions I'd like to ask him as well if he was a real person. Um, <laughs> oh, the great Shane Warne um, would uh, I'd love I'd love to see uh, I'd love to just hear the fizz of the ball out of his hand and, and just ask questions and, and um, pick his brains on on cricket um, as we had such a good cricket brain. Um, so he'd definitely be another one I'd have in there. Um, yeah, I'm kind of a bit stuck uh, for anyone uh, past that. I think um, my excuse for that being that I get to share the nets with some pretty impressive people uh, most days. And, um, yeah, I, 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 I enjoy uh, spending time with all of them. But, um, yeah, those two there would be the form the basis of, of a net session for me. Um, with, with any any other number of people to join after that. Yeah, well, uh, an open an open ticket for that third one. That's that's really interesting, <laughs> Warney. I I think um, I think Warney would just be unbelievable to to hear the ball out of his hand. Did you ever get to play against Shane? No, I never played against Shane. Um, would love to have, uh, as I said massive cricket nuffy, so I'm not sure how well that would have gone. I probably would have just been watching him the whole time. But, uh, yeah, no, I yeah, uh, I didn't get the pleasure or honour of playing against Shane, but I've, I've pretty much seen uh, most of the balls he's bowled in his career So on TV, so it's pretty close. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thanks so much for taking the time to join us on the Cricket Library podcast, Tim. I, I really enjoy stories like yours um, and, and getting to hear – just the way cricket can take you in all sorts of different directions in life and the different experiences that the game provides. And, and that can be if you are a Shane Warne uh, or if, if you're en- at any level of the game, cricket does provide so many opportunities and so many, so many long-lasting friendships and relationships. So uh, we wish you all the best with uh, the season ahead at the Wacker and really looking forward to seeing how your career progresses in, in the coming years. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me on. A massive thanks to Tim McDonald for sharing his story on this edition of the Cricket Library podcast. And it's always good to hear from a cricket tragic and you can hear the passion for the game in Tim's voice and really enjoyed hearing his story and sharing it with you here on the Cricket Library podcast today. And if you enjoyed that chat, Go back, have a listen in the back catalogue. Plenty of other great stories there and a really interesting one coming up in the coming weeks. We'll be hearing from former Australian player Baggy Green 377 Adam Dale. So make sure you are subscribed. Make sure you're keeping up to date with the latest at thecricketlibrary.com and we look forward to your company again next time. This has been Matt Ellis for the Cricket Library Podcast. Bye for now.